Andrew Womack Ministries presents part six of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number 113 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. On this tape, we continue our teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're now into Ephesians chapter 4, and today we will begin the teaching with verse 11. This is found on page 1118 of our printed materials. On our last tape, we covered Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I made this statement that the first part of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, are basically expounding and expressing, trying to understand the great spiritual doctrinal truths of our position in Christ, things that are a reality in the spirit realm, but don't just automatically reflect themselves in the physical realm. In other words, you've got to see that this is your positional truth, and then by faith grab hold of that and bring it into reality. But then in the fourth chapter, it kind of switches, and it goes to where the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians are talking about doctor i mean uh practical things rather than doctrinal things it's talking about the expression how do you make these spiritual truths that were explained in the first three chapters manifest themselves into your physical life so there was kind of a shift here and he starts talking about in chapter 4 verse 1 about walking worthy of the vocation he talks about lowliness meekness long suffering forbearing he talks about how that there is just one body of Christ one lord one faith one baptism he's talking about unity there and then he begins to express that when the lord rose from the dead that he gave gifts unto man and then that was in verse 8 in verses 9 and 10, there is a parenthetical phrase about if Jesus rose from the dead, he first of all descended into the lower parts of the earth, led captivity captive, and then he rose with these gifts. Now, I spent some time talking about that on our last tape. But as we begin into verse 11 today, you need to remember that verse 11 is basically a continuation of what he was saying in verse 8. He was talking about that when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave gifts unto man, and then in verse 11, he describes five of these gifts. And then through the rest of the chapter, he talks about how these gifts help perfect the body of Christ. And again, he's talking about practical things, about how we can really reflect God's power. How is it that we take these great things that have been purchased for us through Jesus and make them manifest into the physical realm? How does it happen? Well, he mentioned a number of things, but in verse 11 here, what he's talking about is that these gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher were given to the body of Christ to help mature them and bring them to a place to where they could see the manifestation of these great things that are ours in the spirit, how we can get it out into the flesh. So in verse 11, he starts ministering and talking about these ministry gifts. He says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, there's a lot of things in this verse. I could spend probably an hour and a half on this one verse. I need to move on. But real quickly, I want to point out some things. When it says that he gave some apostles, I think there's two ways of looking at this. You could say he gave some individuals the gift of being an apostle. He gave some individuals the gift of being a prophet. He gave some individuals the gift of being an evangelist. And he gave some individuals the gift of pastor and teachers. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Another way some people interpret this is to say that he gave some churches 
Now, see, he's talking about God giving gifts unto the uh, unto man, and some people interpret that the gift of being an apostle is a gift that God gives to some churches. Some churches, he gives the gift of a prophet. Some churches believe that he gives the gift of evangelist, and some churches believe that he gave some churches the gift of a pastor and teacher. Can you see the difference here? There's two ways of interpreting this. You could say that these apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are gifts that he gives to individuals, ministry gifts, anointings, callings. Or you could say that the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are men or women who've been gifted, and then these gifted people are given to the churches. Now, I've heard this interpreted both ways. I have a little bit of problem with the second interpretation because... That would imply that some churches, instead of having pastors, have apostles that are in the pulpit and leading the church. Or some have prophets, or some have evangelists, or some have pastors and teachers. I personally believe that God's system for every church is to have the pastor in the leadership role in the local church. I believe that the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists are um, ministry gifts that are more than just for the local church. They are for the universal church. They have a larger scope in their ministry than just the local church, and uh, that they minister from a local church. If everything was running perfectly, which it certainly is not today, I believe that everything that we call a parachurch ministry ought to actually be coming out of the local church. Now, that being said, let me say that I don't. my ministry is not really submitted or controlled by a local church. I've tried this in the past, and I actually did submit my ministry unto a local church. And even though it wasn't devastating, nothing bad came out of it. Actually, some good things came out of it. The local church just didn't have a vision for my ministry. And basically, I just kept running it the way I was, and it was just in name. You know, it wasn't in function that I was actually under their leadership. And so, you know, you just can't do this just out of a sense of duty or obligation. I believe that God's best would be for everything that we call parachurch ministry, my type of ministry, an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist. I believe that all of these really should be sent out from some local body. And they should be blessed, and they should have people in the local body that just, you know, they consider it an outreach of that local body of Christ. They shouldn't look at it as something separate. And that's what I believe is ideal, but it certainly doesn't work that way. And until I find somebody that has a real heart for my ministry and would really like to be a part of it, I wouldn't just turn that over. I think that would be irresponsible. That's certainly not what the Lord wants. So... Anyway, if the body isn't functioning the way that it should, what do you do? Well, I don't know. Until uh, the Lord gives revelation and until the Lord sends somebody that, man, I just feel like that they are somebody that I can and want to submit myself to. And see, submission isn't just a one-way street. It's not just me coming and saying I'm submitting to you. It would have to be a pastor that would also be submitted to me and have a desire for me and have a real pastor's heart towards me in this ministry. Until that happens, you know, I'm just going to be faithful doing what God called me to do. So anyway, the reason I'm saying all of this is to say, I think that if you interpret this to say that some churches have apostles as the ones who run that, I really don't believe that that's the way that God set it up. I believe that the pastor should be the leadership authority figure in the local church. 
Now, does that mean that he answers to nobody? No, I believe that an apostle is even greater than a pastor and that every church should have an apostle who is over it. Again, that doesn't automatically work. You know, I wouldn't go to any pastor who doesn't have somebody who they consider to be their apostle, who they submit themselves to. And I certainly would not criticize them because there are so few people today who call themselves an apostle. And even out of those... There are very few that I believe are true apostles. And then out of those, you just can't go submit yourself to someone that you don't have a relationship with. It takes a while for this to work out. So I would tell a local pastor that, hey, I believe there ought to be an apostle or a prophet or somebody in leadership that you do submit yourself to and that you're accountable to. But... I would say that this is God's ideal thing. The body of Christ is not functioning the way it should, and I wouldn't just have them just out of panic or out of fear saying, "Uh uh-oh, I'm out of order, go submit themselves to somebody. That is certainly wrong, and I've seen that happen. I've seen people with good intentions do things just like that, submit themselves unto someone that they have no relationship with, and it just turns out to be a bad situation. And so that's certainly not right. But the point I'm making here is, see, that I don't believe that uh, the apostle ought to really be the authority figure in the local church. I believe that every local church should have a pastor. Now, the pastor can submit himself unto others, and I believe that that's really the way that the Scripture preaches that the uh, church ought to function. Now, if you interpret this passage of Scripture that some churches have apostles, some have prophets, well, then I believe that that would lend itself to uh, people saying, well, maybe the pastor isn't, you know, the gifting to this local church. And I don't think that that's true. I believe that over in um, the book of Titus, Paul told Timothy to appoint elders in every church, and then he starts giving the qualifications of a bishop. And I believe that that word bishop basically is the same word that we use for pastor. And it says in every church there should have been a pastor or a bishop. And so I believe that that's God's best. So all of this being said, I believe that this basically is saying that God gave some individuals the gift of being an apostle, some prophets, some individuals have the gift of being an evangelist, and some individuals have the gift of being pastors and teachers. Now here's another thing to get out of this verse. Notice the punctuation. It says, and he gave some apostles, semicolon, and some prophets, semicolon, and some evangelists, semicolon, and some pastors and teachers. Now, here's five gifts mentioned, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers, and yet the punctuation is so that it's only like there's four gifts. Notice also that the word some, it says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The word some is only used four times, and yet there's five things mentioned here. Now, all of this leads some people to believe that this gift of pastor and teacher is combined. That actually what this is talking about, that he gave some individuals a gift of being an apostle, some individuals a gift of being a prophet, some individuals a gift of being an evangelist, and some individuals the gift of being pastor-teachers. Or you could say teacher-pastors, teaching pastors. Some people put those two together and say that every pastor really has to be a teacher. A good friend of mine, Bob Yandian, who I consider to be an excellent teacher and just a uh, tremendous authority on a lot of things, I believe that that's the way that he looks at it is that every pastor must be a teacher. Now, I've also heard him say that that does not mean that every teacher is a pastor. 
This is in the same way as the scripture says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that all may prophesy. Every single member of the body of Christ may prophesy, but that doesn't make them a prophet. There is a difference between the simple gift of prophecy that operates in a church where a person just says some few words of edification, exhortation, and comfort. There's a difference between that simple gift of prophecy and the ministry of a prophet. A prophet isn't always unto edification, exhortation, and comfort. You can see that many examples in scriptures where prophets actually brought rebuke, where they prophesied correction, where they foretold future events, which is uh, dramatically different than this simple gift of prophecy that is just a word of exhortation, like, my children, I love you. God uh, is opening up a door for you. The Lord has blessed you, etc., things like that. So every person may prophesy, but that doesn't make them a prophet. Well, I believe that everybody's supposed to be a teacher, but that doesn't mean they have one of these ministry gifts of being a teacher. And even every teacher, you know, even if you have a ministry gift of being a teacher, I don't think that that necessarily makes you a pastor. But I do believe, according to this scripture, the way that it's stated, that every pastor should be a teacher. Now, when you get into practical application of this, there's probably some people listening to this who would come back and say, well, my pastor isn't a teacher. He's an evangelist. And I, I'll tell you from uh, kind of behind the scenes, talking to some other ministers, you know, at ministers groups, things that may not uh, be said out in public all of the time. I've actually had some people who were evangelists. I mean, that was their calling. They used to just travel and minister, and they actually started a church not because they felt like they were a pastor, not because they had the desire to really stay in one place, but they did it out of nothing but economical sense. They needed a local body of believers that could get behind their vision and start helping them, etc. And so they became a pastor out of necessity or out of convenience because they could see that it was just a logical step. I personally would disagree with that. I don't think that that's justification. I can tell you in my own life that there have been some times in my life, I did pastor one time for six years. It was uh, three different churches during a period of six years' time. And I pastored, and I personally look at that as a period of training, that it was when God was teaching me, and it was really training for me. I mean, sorry for the poor folks that had to suffer through me being their pastor, but it wasn't for them. It was for me. And so I pastored, but I personally don't feel like that was really God's call on my life. At the moment, at that period of time, it was God's direction for my life because, I mean, there just wasn't the availability of spirit-filled churches and things that there are today. There wasn't a platform to really minister the Word the way that there is today. All of the established churches were totally closed to any charismatic back in the 60s and very early 70s. There just weren't spirit-filled churches that would receive anything like a faith message or a spirit-filled message. And so I had to start my own Bible studies, turn them into churches, etc., to get a platform to be able to minister to people on anything except just a one-to-one -one basis. So I believe that at the time it was okay, it was God's leading for my life, but in retrospect I look at it and think, I don't know that I was ever called a pastor. It was a training ground for me. And I think that there's people just like that, that at that time... That was God's leading for me. I think that there's some people that maybe are in transition. They don't know how to minister any other way. They get into the ministry, and the first thing that everybody thinks of is becoming a pastor. They think that that's what you've got to do. 
And yet, I think that there are some people in those positions who are are fulfilling the role of a pastor who really don't have that gift. And again, if this scripture is the way that it would appear on the surface, that all pastors are actually teaching pastors, that they have to have this gift of teaching. If that is a true characteristic of a pastor, that they are also a teacher, somebody who can instruct, explain, give direction and guidance, and, and, you know, just foundations in the Christian life. If that's true, then I'm not sure that some of the people who are claiming to be pastors are really having this gift of pastor. And like I said, the application of this uh, could be devastating. (laughs) And I'm sorry for any trouble that it may cause. That's not my purpose. I'm just trying to interpret the Scripture here. There are some people that I know who definitely are not teachers, and yet they, they put themselves and call themselves as being a pastor in a church. I honestly don't have an answer for that. They're more successful than I ever was as a pastor. I certainly am not in a position to criticize them. But I think that there's a couple of things possible. Number one, it could be that they are just literally out of sync. They definitely have a ministry gift, and because of that, people are being blessed and edified, but they aren't going to prosper to the degree that somebody who's called a pastor would. Then other times, I think that maybe you know they're in an apostle role, where an apostle, I believe, does go out and start churches, and that an apostle basically can operate in all five of these gifts listed here, that they basically can do everything. They're kind of like what we would uh, call in the old days a general practitioner in the medical practice. Before there were specialists as surgeons and things like this, out in these rural areas, you'd just have somebody go out and he did everything. I mean, he was even the vet. He did everything because there was just a lack of trained people available. And as a result, he had to do it basically all of it. Well, an apostle is a person that basically goes out and starts brand new works that establishes new ministry. I believe that what we would call a missionary today is really an apostle, somebody that goes to a foreign land and establishes brand new works all the way from getting them born again, which is the work of an evangelist, and then he will prophesy, set things in order, give direction, help people identify gifts and things, which would be the ministry of a prophet. He will supply the ministry of a pastor. He'll start teaching and training discipling those people, getting them established, etc. He'll teach them the Word of God. So basically, see, an apostle does all of those things, but he doesn't do it forever. For instance, if you follow the ministry of the apostle Paul, you'd find that Paul, the longest he ever stayed in any place, was in Ephesus, and he stayed there three years. And so three years, you know, isn't really a very long period of time. I know some people who are pastoring churches that have been there for 30 years. Now, to me, that is a true pastor. And I really cannot think of anybody who's been in one local church for, say, over 20 years. I can't think of one single person like that who I wouldn't say without reservation that they are a pastor. Now, I I could tell you of a lot of people who I see pastoring a church right now that I would question whether they're really in a prophet or if they're really an evangelist or if they're really an apostle and yet they're in a pastor's position right now. But every one of those that I know has only been there just a relatively few years. 
So I'm saying all of this to say that I am not critical of anybody who is pastoring a church, even though they may not display this gift of being a teaching pastor, because it may be a transition. Maybe they're an apostle that is starting a work. They're getting it started, laying the foundation, and maybe there will be someone come along who will step in and take over that nurturing the flock that a pastor really does, which isn't in the heart of an apostle. An apostle, and again, I'm saying some of these things out of observation. Uh, it's I've got footnotes that I've written in previous places giving uh, quite a bit of explanation about apostles. But, you know, this was never just straightforward taught on in the Bible about what is an apostle. Rather, it, it referred to like the apostle Peter and the apostle John and the apostle Paul and the apostle Barnabas. And it called them by name, and then you just have to look at their life, and kind of from that, you have to discern what is this gift of an apostle. And so it's open to some uh, degree of interpretation. It's kind of a subjective opinion. But according to what I can see, an apostle is a person who has a scope beyond just one local church. Paul said in a number of places, he says, I have a desire to go beyond where others have reached and preach the gospel to people that have never heard the gospel before. I believe that that is one of the motivating characteristics of an apostle. Also, Paul said that the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. And so that would imply that an apostle is a person who has the supernatural power of God operative in their ministry. Now, that's not to imply that only apostles have that. Some people have mistaught that to the point that they believe that there's just very few people that can operate in the supernatural. The Scripture teaches that every born-again believer can lay hands on the sick and see them recover, cast out devils. Matter of fact, it's a commandment for us to do those kind of things. But I believe that a, an apostle is a person that has the gift of miracles operating in his life, and it's characteristic of them. So anyway, I believe that many times we will see these ministry gifts overlap. It's possible that one person could have more than one of them. It's possible that an apostle could be doing the work of a pastor temporarily. And some people could look at this and say, well, man, this guy isn't really a teacher. He's not just a pure Holy Ghost teacher like somebody else. And so they could become critical of the apostle and they could miss that maybe God has that person there for a period of time to get this thing started you know, to to establish it, and eventually it will be turned over to a pastor or something like this. I tell you, I just don't feel confident enough to come in and tell anybody, hey, you're totally out of line and things like this. Now, it is my opinion that there are some people who are called of God and have gifts in their life and they're out of pocket. They just jump at the pastor because it seems like the easy way to get started in the ministry when the truth is that sometimes I believe people are called to a traveling ministry. They aren't called to just one local church. And I can tell you that in my own life, that certainly was true of me. So anyway, there's some really interesting things here. I just haven't got time to go into all of this. As I said, we could talk, um, I'm sure, for the entire hour and a half on just this one verse. Let me mention that the word evangelist here, this is the only time that the word evangelist, plural, is used in Scripture. There is one other time, or excuse me, two other times where the word evangelist is used in the New Testament. That's Acts 21, 8 and 2 Timothy 4, 5. And in 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul there told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, implying that maybe that wasn't his gifting and calling, but he was to do the work of an evangelist. 
And I think that this could apply to nearly any ministry gift. There's been times, like, for instance, I remember when I first went over to India. I'm a teacher, and a teacher basically is to the body of Christ. It's not to the unbelievers. It's not an evangelistic gift. But I'm to teach and train Christians so that they can walk in the abundance God intended them to and make them a better, more effective witness, and then they go out and share the gospel with other people. So basically, my teaching gift is to Christians. But when I went to India, I was put into a situation where there were not Christians around. Matter of fact, I ministered to thousands and thousands of people with virtually no Christians among them. There were some that called themselves Christians, but they were not true born-again Christians. It was just a religious thing. And when I got over there, I mean, they didn't need to be taught about who they were in Christ because they weren't in Christ. And so you know what? I really drew on this Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5 where it says, Do the work of an evangelist. And I mean, I prayed for it, and I got up, and I gave evangelistic messages, and I saw some people born again, and I saw some things happen. I believe I was drawing on that evangelist anointing, although that certainly wasn't my calling. And so if... Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, could draw on the evangelist anointing. I believe that an evangelist could draw on the pastor anointing if that's the situation that he's in. In other words, his true heart, his true gifting, the thing that really makes him tick and where he flows the easiest may be that of an evangelist. But if he's in a situation where he's pastoring a church, he can draw on that gift and God can supernaturally bless him and empower him. But it'll never function as easy or see as much fruit as just doing what God called him to do. So anyway, there's a lot of things here about this. You know, the implications of this are just really, they're broad. We could go into a lot of things about the organization of church, the way that it's set up and stuff, and you could get very technical and very narrow-minded and have all of this worked out and say, then this person is right and this one is wrong. I don't think it's that simple. I really don't. I think that our... The body of Christ today isn't functioning the way that the Lord wanted it to, and to get where it should be, the way God originally intended it to be, it just uh, it isn't a simple issue. We've got people out of pocket. We've got evangelists drawn on the ministry gift of a pastor and vice versa, and it's kind of a confused issue. But nonetheless, the point that he's making here is that all of these gifts were given to the church to help them practically experience and manifest these great spiritual truths that he had enumerated in the first three chapters. Let me go on to say here that uh, the word pastors is only used in this one instance in all of the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament... There was one time that the word pastor was used in uh, Jeremiah 17:6, and then the word pastors, plural, was used seven times in Jeremiah. In each one of these instances, it was referring back to uh, some connection to do with like a shepherd and sheep. And the very word pastor literally means a shepherd. And you can see that in every instance it was used in the Old Testament. It was in connection with uh, sheep, and that's literally what it's talking about. When Peter was talking about over in First Peter chapter 5, it says, you know, take the oversight of the flock, not as being lords over God's inheritance, but examples. I believe there again, see, he's talking to pastors or bishops, and he's talking here about taking the oversight of the flock. Once again, it's referring or reflecting on the very nature of that word. It came from the word shepherd. 
And so a pastor is basically just a shepherd. He's a leader, somebody there for protection, to guide them into pastures, to show them where to eat, what to eat, to keep them away from the bad stuff, to give them the good stuff, to make sure they get watered enough, taken care of. It's for their own protection, for their own growth. And basically, that is the function of a pastor. As I said, this word pastors is only used one time in the New Testament. And so really, um, there isn't a tremendous amount of teaching about what the function of a pastor is. Now, this same word that was used uh, and translated pastor, it also came, the same word was also translated bishop and bishops in the New Testament. And so I believe that that word where it refers to bishops, like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1, 7, 1 Peter 2, 25, etc., I believe that that is basically talking about the same thing as a pastor. Today we have so many different terminologies. We have the presbytery. We have elders. We have bishops. We have deacons. We have pastors. We have all of these kind of things. I believe some of these are just different ways of referring to the same person. You know, it really simplifies this whole thing to me. If you just call it, you know, leadership positions. In other words, the person who is in the number one leadership position in the local church is what we today basically call the pastor. Now, some churches might call that different, but I believe that that is basically what it is. In the Bible, when it was referring to a bishop, I believe that that was talking about this leadership position, what we call the pastor today. Now, some churches have kind of complicated this because they have pastors over local churches, and then over the pastor is a bishop. And they talk about bishops, and if you go into the Catholic Church, then there's cardinals and all of these different things all the way up to the Pope, a whole series of chain of command. And so they put bishops in a totally different category. I believe that bishop was just referring to pastor. And I could get into a great teaching on this and take an hour to teach that. That is not my point. We've got to move on. But I encourage you to study it out. I believe that bishop and pastor are being used interchangeably in a number of cases. Now, that's the the leadership position in the local church. Now, below that, there's all kinds of different levels of this. Some churches have a organizational structure to where they have a board of deacons or a board of directors that direct the church and different things, an incorporation board and all kinds of other things. Scripturally speaking, I believe that there should be the pastor, and then under the pastor, uh, there should be things such as deacons and elders. Actually, elder is a very uh, encompassing word that I believe would even include the pastor. In other words, elder would be a term that just refers to leadership. And then among the leadership, there is the pastor. Below the pastor, there would be deacons like that go out and do a lot of the practical ministry to other people. There would be gifts of helps, uh, exhortation, and different things like that. And anyway, I'm getting a little far off the subject. So, uh, This is just talking about that there are these different gifts. Depending on how you view this, there's some people call it the fivefold ministry gifts here in verse 11. Some people would refer to it as a fourfold ministry gift, combining pastors and teachers into one gifting. If you do that, if you look at pastors and teachers as one gift, then that would help clarify one passage of Scripture over in 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, when it's talking about uh, the positions of leadership in the church, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
it says uh, in verse 28, it says, God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Now, some people, when they look at this, it's very noticeable that pastor isn't mentioned in there. And some people say, well, what about that? Well, how come the apostle is mentioned and then second, the prophets, and then teachers go beyond that? Well, if you interpret Ephesians 4.11 as a pastor-teacher being one combined gift, then what that would do, that would, that would mean in 1 Corinthians 12.28 when it says that he has set third in the church teachers, that could be referring to a teaching pastor. That could be just another way of referring to this leadership gift in the local church. If you do that, that would really help clarify 1 Corinthians 12.28 because pastors were mentioned, but just not by that name. Pastor teacher was referred to there. So anyway, that's kind of a sideline. Once again, the purpose for mentioning all of this is just to say that this is how God wants this practical application of all of these wonderful spiritual truths that Paul had been talking about. Our position in Christ, seated in heavenly places. How do you get this practically working? Well, the way you do it is that God gave these gifted ministry people to the body of Christ. In verse 12, it says... Here's their function. It's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, this is very, very important. Today, we see in our body of Christ, in our situation, that most of these ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, these ministry gifts are doing like 90 or 95% of all of the Christian ministry. In other words, we bring people to the church so that the pastor can lead them to the Lord, so that the pastor can pray for them and get them healed, so that the pastor or the visiting evangelist or the traveling teacher or the apostle or the prophet coming through can minister to them. I don't believe that that's the way that God intended it. What this is implying is that God gave the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher so that they could minister to the body of Christ as the body of Christ begins to be perfected. And this word perfected here doesn't mean perfect. It just means mature or complete. As we begin to start being completed, as we begin to start releasing God's uh, power and operation in our life, then the body of Christ does the work of the ministry. And we edify one another, eventually go out, and we actually uh, impact other people. Now, this is a much more efficient system of ministry, and I believe it's one of the areas that the body of Christ is really missing it in today. Instead of looking to the clergy to do all of the ministry, and our only part is maybe to invite somebody to come talk to the clergy, instead the clergy are these ministry gifts should be ministering to the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ becomes complete and mature, then the body goes out and actually does the work of the ministry. Instead of most people being born again in church, I really believe that the church service ought to be a time where we go and minister to each other. And we teach the Word of God, help people mature and minister to them, and then we go out. Every member of the body of Christ goes out, and we lead our neighbors, our relatives, the people that we work with, the people that we come in contact with every day. We lead them to the Lord, and most salvation should be taking place outside of the church. Most healings and miracles should be taking place outside of the church as we use them to minister to other people. 
and see people's lives get set free. And then when those people get turned on, born again, and want to start growing, then we bring them to church so that the ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, help mature them so that they can go out and once again reproduce and lead somebody else to the Lord and get them healed, delivered, set free. Boy, now that's exciting to me because if that worked, you know, right now I I don't have any idea how many churches there are in the United States. I wouldn't even venture a guess, really. I know that in Colorado Springs alone, there's around 400 churches in a town of about 400,000 people. And so if that's true, there's a church for about every 100 people in this town. If you were to do that in the United States, that would mean that there are millions of churches. That would make you think that there are millions of ministers, but there's about 300 million people in the United States. If you were to take the people that were in these churches, if there's a million churches in the United States, and if each one of them averaged 100 people on the membership roll, then that would be about 100 million people, roughly one-third of the population of the United States, which is nearly consistent with some of the polls that I've seen. Some polls estimate that as many as 60 people go to church on a fairly regular basis. But out of, you know, the people who say they belong to a church, I would imagine that only about half of those come. So anyway, estimating that there's maybe 100 million people in Christian churches in the United States is probably accurate. And so, see here, if you've got ministers trying to reach the population, then you have at least 100 times less people out preaching the gospel than if every member of the body of Christ was out doing it. That was kind of a sloppy way of saying that. What I'm trying to say is that you would have 100 times more people out preaching the gospel and laying hands on people and seeing miracles happen if every member of the body of Christ was functioning instead of just depending on the clergy to do it. You see what I'm trying to say? That's a much more effective way. Plus, I can say that as a minister, you know, I reach people on the radio. I'm reaching people through this tape right now. I'm sharing the word. I'm doing things. But you know what? I really cannot reach into every segment of society. When I go into a town and minister, I may hold a meeting and have four or 500 people, even on up to 1,000 people come to my meetings. I may minister to them, but I can promise you there's people that drive by on the street. There's milkmen. There's, you know, postmen. There's people just all around me that I'll never touch their life. But if every person, if there was a thousand people come to my meeting and if every person got touched and turned on so that they went out and shared, we would reach into every segment of that community through that. It's just a much more effective way of ministering the gospel. And sad to say, instead of each individual member of the body of Christ going out and doing their part, we have been leaving it to the pastors. Some people even have the attitude, well, like, man, we pay you. That's what you're supposed to do is go out here and witness to these people and pray with them. No, I believe that the body of Christ, every rank and file member of the church should be out there ministering to the lost and praying for the saints and visiting the people in the hospital and doing the work of the ministry. That is not just the preacher's job. That's every person's job. The preacher really is supposed to equip the saints so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry and then the body of Christ is going to be edified the way that it should. Shepherds don't have sheep. Shepherds tend the sheep, and then the sheep have sheep. 
the analogy is that pastors really should not be the ones out leading the lost to the Lord. Pastors should be ministering to the saints, and then the saints should go out and reproduce their faith and see people born again. Now, because a pastor is also a saint, then sure, they will lead people to the Lord as an individual. But their ministry gift really isn't to go out and lead people to the Lord. Their ministry gift is to equip the saints so that they can go out and do these things. Boy, that's powerful. i tell you what, that excites me. I know that's simple to some people, but as a whole, the body of Christ does not see that. I mean, most people have this concept of clergy and laity. That is really incorrect. Every single member in the body of Christ is a minister. Some minister in the church with a special anointing as a pastor, teacher, or an evangelist, or a prophet, or an apostle. And their special anointing is to equip the saints so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry. You know, if you apply this and take it to its logical conclusion, then I believe that there would even need to be some redefining of what an evangelist is. Because most people view an evangelist as a person who has a passion to lead people to the Lord. Well, every Christian should have a passion to lead lead people to the Lord. And so they would even define it a little bit more and say, well, it's a person who has a special anointing to lead people to the Lord. And that basically is the way that we see the ministry gift of an evangelist function in the body of Christ today. We have people come through that just have, I mean, a special anointing, a zeal to lead people to the Lord. And they will get hundreds and hundreds of people born again, whereas somebody else might share on the exact same subject and just see one or two people born again. Now, that's kind of the way we see it functioning today. But if you take what I've been saying here on this tape and see these gifts as given to the church so that they can minister to the individuals and the individuals can go out and do the work of the ministry, then it's possible that we might redefine evangelist this way and say that an evangelist is a person who not only leads people to the Lord as an individual or collectively in large groups, but an evangelist is a person who has a gift to be able to come in and minister to the saints and equip them and teach them how they could lead people to the Lord, and then the saints go out and see many people born again. Do you see the difference that I'm saying here? I've got a man on staff with me, and I mean, this guy is, I believe, a true evangelist. He could lead a fence post to the Lord. I mean, he can just make anybody, he can even make somebody who's already born again wish that they were lost so that they could get born again. Listening to this guy, he makes the Lord so attractive, and that's what makes his heart beat. That's what he likes doing. And you know, the way Clifton ministers, he doesn't just go into a church and hold evangelistic services where the Church people bring the lost in, and then Clifton gets them born again. But Clifton goes into churches, and he stirs up the members of the body of Christ, tells them about how important it is for them to share their faith with other people. He gives them tools. He shows them how to do it. He literally takes people out and one-on-one shows them how easy it is to lead people to the Lord. And so Clifton, when he goes into a church, he doesn't just hold mass evangelistic services, but he goes in and teaches the Christians how to reproduce their faith and how to do the work of an evangelist. And through that, he actually is multiplying himself many times over. And I believe that that is a valid uh, ministry of an evangelist. 
Now, that's a little different twist than what most people see. Most of us are used to somebody coming in like Billy Graham and holding a crusade with 100,000 people and seeing 10,000 people born again. Well, I don't have any doubt that Billy Graham is an evangelist and that he's got that gift on his life. But I believe that, once again, that these giftings are so that the people in the body can be matured and then they can go out and do the work of the ministry. It's not up to just pastors to lead people to the Lord. It's not up to just evangelists to hold mass crusades. But an evangelist should really be teaching the body of Christ how they can go out and reproduce. Praise God. I believe that's good. So anyway, it says that the these ministry gifts help perfect the saints, and then the saints do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And notice in verse 13, these things are until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Boy, these are awesome statements here. I tell you, I am not making very good time going through these scriptures. These are scriptures that I have just spent hundreds of hours meditating on, and it's hard for me to just go through them quickly. I don't guess I really have to rush through this, but I just know that covering two or three verses on in an hour and a half teaching, it m- makes it for a very long study through the New Testament. But there's some wonderful things here. It says that these gifts are until we all come into the unity of the faith. There are some people that preach that all the apostles died in the first century and that there are not apostles today and that there are not prophets today. Now, most Christians, whether they're spirit-filled or not, will acknowledge evangelists and pastors and teachers, but they ignore and exclude apostles and prophets. I've got footnotes that I've made reference to in these passages of Scripture that show you that apostles and prophets have not passed away. And there's many different ways of doing that. But right here, this is one of the clearest references. These gifts are given until the body of Christ comes into the unity of the faith. Well, that certainly has not happened. And so until that happens, we can rest assured that these gifts are still in operation today. Now, they may not be functioning properly. There may be, you know, a shortage of them. There might need to be a resurgence, a resurrection, a revival of these things. But nonetheless, you can just write it down that until the body of Christ is complete in these areas, that these ministry gifts are still for us today. That right there should just knock in the head a lot of junk that people teach against apostles and prophets. So they are given until we all come into the unity of the faith. Boy, this is something that a lot of people don't even have as a goal. They see the body of Christ so fragmented today and going so so many different directions, they just don't think we could ever come into unity. Well, these gifts were given for that purpose, to help bring us into the unity of the faith. I could spend an hour talking about that, about how important unity is and how it's not just something to be scoffed at or to say, well, we can't obtain unto that. That was God's original intent. That's the reason he gave these gifts. And praise God, we should not be content to settle with the division and the problems we see in the body of Christ today. God did not intend that. He intended for us to be one body, unified, single in purpose and effort. It's not that way today, but that doesn't mean that we ought to just accept it and say, well, it'll never be that way. I believe that it will someday. It goes on to say, until we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. We need to not only be unified in faith, but also unified in our knowledge of the Son of God. That will produce a perfect man 
Perfect here, once again, does not mean sinless, that there is no problem, no carnality. I don't believe that the scriptures teach that we will ever reach a place of sinless perfection. But the word perfect here is just talking about maturity. And what kind of maturity? It goes on to say, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this looks so impossible. When you start talking about me being mature, you have to say, now, what do you mean by mature? Well, this is saying the same type of maturity that was in Christ, the fullness of Christ, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, being just like Jesus. This really stretches your faith. I mean, with a natural eye, I could not ever see the body of Christ ever approaching the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not in this physical life. I believe that someday when the Lord returns that we will be like that, as it says in 1 John chapter 3, that we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. I can see that happening when the Lord just supernaturally changes us and we receive a glorified body. But short of that, I mean through the ministry of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, could we ever come to a place where we really are unified in our faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God, even to the point that we are walking in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? It looks totally impossible. And yet I believe that that's exactly what these verses are saying. That is the design of the ministry gifts is to bring us into this place of unity and maturity, even reflecting the fullness of Christ. And so I would just have to say that even though I can't conceive of this with my physical mind, I would embrace it in in my heart and say that it just is going to take a miracle of God. I've thought a lot about this, and I don't know exactly how the Lord is ever going to bring this to pass, but I could see that during terrible persecution, that a lot of the things that divide us right now, you know, over whether we worship on Saturday or Sunday, or whether we dip or sprinkle, or just hold them under until they really repent, or whether we use real wine in communion, or whether we use grape juice, and whether the woman's hair ought to be so long or if it's okay for it to be short, or whether we wear makeup or don't, and on and on, all of the things that are dividing Christians in the body of Christ and keeping us away from this. I could see that if persecution came, and I mean you're, you were being killed for the sake of the Lord, I could see that, man, a lot of those things had dropped by the wayside. And, man, we found somebody who was a believer and who was praying and crying out to God for protection. I think that we could bond with them, that we could come into unity. And I think that a lot of the carnality could be done away with. If nothing else, the people who are really carnal and didn't know how to believe God would probably be overcome and killed through the persecution. Not to say that they would die and go to hell, but they would be eliminated from the face of the earth. It's possible that through persecution, the body of Christ could be refined, and the uh, people who aren't walking in the joy and the victory of the Lord would just be eliminated because they wouldn't be able to withstand. The ones who left are left would be the ones who, man... Uh, drew on the power of the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost uh, draws us together. I don't know. This is just a a possible explanation of how this could happen. Through persecution, I could see that someday we would drop all of our tags and divisions and just unify behind the Lord. I would pray that it doesn't have to come to that. I would say this, that the Bible here didn't say that persecution was given to help bring us to this point. It says that these ministry gifts... If the body of Christ and if the ministers would really fulfill their calling 
and began to minister in such a way that every member of the body of Christ went out and did the work of the ministry and stuff. I think that this could happen. I believe that that's what these scriptures are saying. This was the design of the Lord. In verse 14, here's the results. If we were to start walking in this unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, come unto a mature man, even, you know, reflecting the fullness of Christ, then in verse 14, here's what would happen, that we would henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Boy, now this 14th verse is very descriptive of the body of Christ today. I believe that instead of us passing this place, this is actually descriptive of where we are, that the body of Christ as a whole is like children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You know what this is a word picture of? It's like, you know, uh, something floating on the water. And every time the wind blows or that there's a wave or, a, you know, we just go with the flow. I mean, there is no stability. We aren't anchored anywhere. We aren't staying, but we're just floating. We're drifting with the tide. And I tell you, in my little brief exposure in the body of Christ, I have seen this happen so many times that fads come through. And I mean for a period of time. Boy, everybody was talking about, I hesitate to say things lest somebody think I'm criticizing a minister. So I, I just won't be that specific. But there were fads that came through with prayer. There's fads that come through with intercession. There's fads that come through with, man, the local church, and then the cell groups, and then this, and then there's that. And uh, no, it's faith teaching, and no, it's the righteousness of God, and no, it's the word teaching, and no, you've got to get into dying to yourself. And then there was the shepherding movement, and then, I mean, all of these things have happened in my little brief time. Today, the thing that is just really strong is the Holy Ghost laughter and the supernatural manifestations. And you know what? I believe that there is valid truth in each one of these things. I don't think that it's a fact that God is, is doing a brand new thing, but the body of Christ, it's like instead of, instead of holding on to the foundational truths that God has already taught them, that the body of Christ just isn't simply flowing and everything they've gotten. So somebody comes through and, man, the, the body of Christ has become so dead and so lifeless and, and so morbid that they need to be lightened up. And so somebody comes through with an anointing, man, where there's laughter and there's awesome things happening and people are getting filled and joy is hitting them. And instead of just saying, well, man, I needed this. And instead of embracing it and incorporating it and making it a part of what God is doing, they let go of everything else and say, everything else that's ever happened was never of God. This is it. And they go with this and make this the only thing that God is doing. You know what I consider that? I consider that to be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Not to say that the laughter or the intercession or the discipleship or the shepherding or the word movement or the faith or any of this was ever wrong. There was truth in every bit of it. But it, it's like children. We just don't have any stability. We're always going with the brand new thing. You know, one of the things that pushes a person beyond the uh, period of being a child into maturity is that now that you're a, a full-grown adult, there are certain things that you just always do. You're going to have to be responsible. You're going to have to keep your job. You're going to have to pay your bills. you got to pay your rent. you got to buy food. There's some things you just always keep doing. And yet, if you're really a successful adult, you aren't static. 
It's not that you aren't still looking for new ventures, that you still aren't excited about something and you like a challenge and that you're willing to step out and try new things. See, you don't lose that, but you, but you hold on to these steady things. You become responsible. You have a family and you keep food on the table and you keep doing certain things even though, yes, you might take adventures, you might take some risk, you might do this, but you're not never going to compromise these foundational basic truths. A child isn't like that. Man, a child, they don't have responsibility. They don't have to keep anything going. They're just off on this tangent and off on that tangent. Well, that's the way I see the body of Christ. We need to come to a place to where, yes, you know, we're still looking and recognizing that nobody understands everything about God. That, man, there's all kinds of new things that we haven't learned and understood. And so we're ready to receive, but not at the expense of letting go of foundational truths. I've seen the body of Christ go through these phases to where, man, they they just get away from, you know, the basics, just loving God, relationship with God, studying the Word, praying, seeking His face, walking in integrity and humility with the Lord. They get away from these foundational things and they want to go off on some new thing. I remember when the glory cloud came through. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but there was a teaching where everybody was going to see the glory of God. And they were looking for this and preaching about it and wanting to see physical Shekinah glory clouds come into the service. And, you know, I thought to myself, Jesus never had one of those in his meetings. Now, he did on the Mount of Transfiguration have a glory cloud, but it was in front of three people, and he told those people not to tell anybody what they saw. He never had it in his meeting. Why, why would we want it if he didn't have it? Man, I'd be satisfied with a ministry like Jesus to see the same results he did, and he never saw a glory cloud. Now, is that to say that nobody has ever seen a mist or a cloud come into a meeting, that God has never done that? No, I don't I don't doubt that. I believe that there are supernatural manifestations and they've come, but man, to preach on that and spend I mean, there was a period of time for probably two years that most spirit filled people were just buzz at you know, they were buzzing about that, talking about it and wanting to see this glory cloud. And to me it was it was a a doctrine of man that just went way off the tangent. That is not foundational, that is not the kind of stuff you need to be talking about. Amen. I tell you, we could spend forever talking about these things. But see, we're we're supposed to get away from that. We're supposed to get out of being a child, tossed to and fro, just one day to the right, one day to the left. No stability, no purpose. I tell you, one of the things I appreciate about some people, I'll use Billy Graham as an example because he's very well known. And even though there are those who oppose him, they are certainly in the minority. Most people really appreciate what... Billy Graham has done. And one of the things I appreciate about this man more than anything else is that he is still preaching the same word today that he was preaching in 1949. I mean, he hasn't changed. Now, I'm sure he's grown. He's probably matured and different things, but it's still the same message. He's preaching the same truths. I have people come to me all the time and say, what new thing is God showing you? And there are things that I'm growing in. I mean, there's always something new. But, you know, the vast majority of what God shows me isn't brand new. It's not a new doctrine. It's just how to say truths that he gave me 20 and 30 years ago. It's just how to say them a little bit better, how to illustrate it, how to make it clear. I'm growing and maturing, but I'm still preaching the same thing I was preaching 20 or 30 years ago. Billy Graham does that. To me, that is a tremendous attribute. 
is to just get hold of the truth and preach it and not go off on tangents and not go for every brand new thing, but just preach the same things that have been working for centuries, ever since Jesus commissioned us to preach the gospel. I tell you, people, they're always looking for some brand new revelation that nobody else has ever seen. I just write flake over them every time I see something like that. It says here that we shouldn't be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. If you take time to read some of my footnotes here, you'll find out that this is actually some uh, some of the words here are referring to the deception that's used in gambling, card tricks, you know, those little shells where you move them around, the slide of man, the hand is quicker than the eye, some kind of a deception like that. And sad to say, in the spiritual realm, the same thing is done. I mean, people come across and they look good, they sound good, but it's just vanity. There's no real substance to it. Do you know that the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are to help ground the body of Christ so that they won't fall for these kind of things? And sad to say, the body of Christ is really falling for these things today, so I guess you would have to say that the ministry gifts that we have failed to do our job, we are not establishing people. Boy, they're just going after weird things. If it's bizarre... If it's wild, it seems like the body of Christ gravitates towards that. And that's a real indication or an indictment against these ministry gifts. We have not been doing our job adequately. In verse 15, instead of being like children tossed to and fro, here's the way we should be. We should speak the truth in love, and we may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. In other words, how do you counter this deception? Well, you have to tell people the truth. Now, you have to do it in love. It makes a real emphasis here on speaking the truth in love. But nonetheless, you have to speak the truth. I feel that a lot of times today, we're just afraid to tell people the truth. We're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Our society has become so conscious of being politically correct that we can't even tell people anything. We can't tell people that you're overweight. That's just too blunt. That's too crude. We have to say that you are somehow another challenge. You know, short people today, we say that they are vertically challenged and, and all of these kind of things. Oh, give me a break. Man, we just need to tell people the truth. Now, you can do it in love. You know, I don't have a lot of time to share with people. I'm a traveling ministry. I don't have time to sit down and deal with people for 15 <clears throat> counseling sessions. And so when I talk to people, I sometimes am brutally honest with them, but I really am doing it out of love. I'm trying to help these people to see what God's Word has to say and to break through the problems. And I say some real hard things, things that could be really misinterpreted, but I say it in love, and people nine out of ten times will really discern the love that I'm saying it with. And I found out that when you say something even harsh, even something that may not be what they want to hear, if they can perceive that you're saying it in love, people will receive that. They really will. I mean, most people that I talk to are looking for help. And uh, they aren't just looking for somebody that'll say what they want them to say. They're looking for the truth. It has to be spoken in love. And if we would do that, it says that's the way that we grow up unto him in all things. You cannot get a person's life turned around without telling them the truth. It says you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free out of John eight thirty one and 32. In John chapter 17, he says, thy word is truth. We've got to speak the truth to people.
I've seen people that are praying for a loved one, but rather than ever criticize them, rather than ever say anything that will hurt their feelings, they just try and always walk at peace and never say or do anything that would upset them. Well, I guarantee you the truth is going to upset a person who is not walking in the truth. It is wrong to think that you, you're you missing it somehow if you ever say anything that upsets a person. No, you have to tell people the truth, but you've got to speak it in love. The truth without love is like a bat. You can use it to beat a person, and that certainly is not what God intended. But love without the truth is not honesty. It's deception. It really is. I tell you, a parent that isn't telling their child the truth and trying to steer them away from those problems and stuff, they can say, well, I just love them too much. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to ever make them feel rejection or anything like that. That's wrong. You've got to tell them the truth. On the other hand, you can get a parent that just talks about truth and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, and has no concern for their feelings. That's wrong also. There needs to be a balance here, a combination somewhere where you speak the truth in love. We recognize that with our children. Well, the same thing's true in the body of Christ. You know, I go into a lot of churches, and I hear all kinds of things. I hear prophecies sometimes where people get up, and I mean, they say terrible things. It's not according to the Word of God at all. And most pastors, ministers, won't say anything because they just don't want to offend anybody, and they'll let it go. After the service, they'll talk to me and say, boy, that just wasn't God. This person misses it all the time. Well, the Scripture says that when a prophecy comes forth in the church service, that the other prophets are supposed to sit by and judge, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Technically speaking, you should correct those things. And I've been in church services where I've done that. And in love, I've stood up and I said, this person missed it. Or I'll say, this person got a word from God and made a paragraph out of it. Here was the part that was accurate, and then this is just embellishing, and it's wrong. But I'll say it in love. And I've actually had the people that I've corrected come up and thank me. I've really not had negative reactions, and yet I've done that. And you know what the result is? That people in that church service have always walked up to me and said, man, I appreciate you doing that. I've had questions. I've wondered about this. It didn't bear witness in my spirit. But because nobody ever says anything, I just it confuses me. And I think, well, what's wrong with me? How come I'm the only one that doesn't bear witness with these words or with this or with that? And it's bringing stability to the body. See, this is the way you do it. These ministry gifts need to speak the truth in love. Not only the ministry gifts, but every member of the body of Christ. We need to start speaking the truth in love to one another. That doesn't mean you go out of your way to be rude. It just doesn't give you a, a scripture to stand on so that you can just be critical and go up and tell everybody what you think of them. But I'm talking about that if there is some positive result to be obtained, then speak the truth to these people in love, and you will see them start growing up. Boy, now that is a positive truth. That could be talked on for a long, long time. Let me go on and at least try and get another few verses here. In verse 16, it's talking about growing up into the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, all of these scriptures right here that I've been studying today are talking about what should happen 
when these ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher begin to function. They should teach the body of Christ so that they can mature, and then the body goes out and does the work of the ministry and begins to edify itself, and this will cause us to come into a unity of the faith, unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. It will keep us from being like children tossed to and fro, but we'll speak the truth to one another, and we'll start growing as we begin to start speaking the truth. And then what that will cause is that the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supply. Can you get the picture here? Instead of just the ministry gifts bringing the body into unity, they teach the body. And as the body matures, then we speak the truth one to another. We are not any longer just going with the flow, but we've got stability. This is what God's Word says. We're mature. We're going to counter things. We're going to speak the truth. And what that will do, it will make the body fit together, just like your physical body. You know, you've got hands. You've got arms, fingers, toes. But they're in a certain place. They're in a certain position. Your hand isn't coming out of your shoulder with the arm just standing out here. That hand is so much more effective if it's out at the end of that arm and functioning properly. Everything has to be put together in the right order. It's not enough to have, you know, five fingers on one hand. What if that hand was on your back where you couldn't use it? You all see this? It's got to be in the right order. The body has to fit together and begin to function so that everybody knows its place and its part. And I don't know exactly what part the five-fold ministry gift would be. Let's say that it's the hand. You know, the hand has a place, but it certainly can't do what the foot can do or what the leg can do. It certainly can't do what the back can do. You can't lift as much weight with your hand as you can with your back. And the hand, see, is just to get the rest of the body put together and functioning properly. And so it says that we will be joined together and compacted. The word compact here means to compress. It's like if those of you who know anything about uh, wood, when you get particle board instead of just plywood, but you get particle board, you get little pieces of wood. That that 4 by 8 sheet of particle board is made up of hundreds or thousands of little pieces of wood, and they're all glued together. They're compacted. They're squeezed together so that there is no separation. It literally becomes one unit. Together, You have to saw that entire board. You can't just take it apart little tiny piece by piece that is in there because they've been joined together to make one new unit. Well, that's what this word here is implying, that we get compacted, squeezed together, uh, merged, fused together is is a good word for this, by that which every joint supplies. Now, notice that it starts with the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. But then they teach the body. The body goes out and it says every joint supplies. Every joint. Every member of the body of Christ has to be functioning for us to see this maturity. We are not going to see the body of Christ begin to mature and the church complete until we get out of this concept of just the clergy and the laity and the clergy does the work of the ministry. We've got to start getting this concept that, man, every one of us has something to supply. You know, when you come to church, instead of thinking about, man, I'm praying that that minister will speak to me today and give me what I need, you know, every member of the body of Christ ought to be coming and saying, Father, I want to receive, and anything you have for me, I'll receive it, but... I want to give. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And Father, show me how I can make a difference today. Now, this does not mean that you go in and 
cause a scene and get out of order and try and interrupt the pastor. That's not what I'm talking about. There is a, you know, a system of order that the scripture talks about. First Corinthians chapter 14, let everything be done decently and in order. But I'm saying that every member of the body of Christ ought to recognize that you have something to give and you ought to go to church saying, Lord, show me someone today who just needs a word of encouragement. Or show me, if I have a word for somebody, lay someone on my heart. Or maybe somebody needs some money today, or they just need some encouragement. Maybe you could bake them a pie or take them something, or just go give them a note and tell them how much they've blessed you. And if every person in the church came with that attitude to bless someone else, I tell you, it would be life-changing. I recently was at a church where I had what I called Bless Another Day. And I was ministering starting on Wednesday going through Sunday, and I built them up all week long. And I said, when you come Sunday, I want you to pick somebody out and just bless them. Just do something for them. Write them a note. Tell them how much you meant to them. Give them, you know, something that's important to you, a little cup or something, maybe that just has a saying on it that would minister to these people. Or, you know, maybe you might be led to give them some money or to do something like that or to share, uh, you know, one of your prized possessions or just something to bless somebody. And I said, everybody, I want you to do it. And if they're thinking about, well, what happens if I give and nobody gives anything to me? Well, the answer to that is it's not bless yourself day, it's bless another day. It doesn't matter if anybody gives you anything, you need to find the joy of giving to others. And you know, as people did that, I haven't even heard all the reports of it yet, but the few things I heard while I was there, it was awesome. People loved it, and I mean people were blessed. And I promise you, if every single week we somehow or another emphasize that, and when we come together, the purpose was every joint is going to supply something. Every person that comes today, we want you to pray and have God lead you so that somehow you can bless another, that you could be a blessing, that you could supply something. Boy, if you got into that, I tell you, it would become habit forming. There would be so much joy in that it would become addictive. And if the body of Christ came together, it would be just like the scriptures talk about. They, the scriptures called the early saints coming together as a love feast. And I'm convinced that one reason for that was because they were all there to bless another. Man, they were all there edifying one another. They came there to bless others and to give. Every joint was supplying. And I tell you, this is going to be an important part of the body of Christ coming into unity. We've got to get out of this idea of the preacher coming and all of the responsibilities on him, and you sit there with your arms folded just daring him to bless you. That is not the purpose of coming to church. Sure, you should be there to receive from the gift, but at the same time, you should be giving. You should be supplying something, and that's what this is talking about. It says, we are compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Every part. I want to encourage you. Some of you may not feel like you have anything to give, but every person has something that you can give. You would be literally astounded if you went in instead of thinking, oh God, what can I get for me? And if you said, Father, this right here says that this is the way that the body should function. Every part Every part should have something working in it to supply and to minister to the others. If you really got hold of this and said, Lord, just show me something that I could do, I promise you God would give you supernatural ideas. And as you begin to start giving to somebody else, you could see your church experience a revival through this. I tell you, that's the way it's going to come. It's not going to come through just the preacher getting on fire. 
If you would start just loving people and giving every part and encourage others, hey, you can do it. You can bless somebody. Even if a person doesn't have any money, did you know every person has something that they can give? You can make something for a person. You can. You can do something. And if you would begin to do that, and I'm not talking about just giving material things, but giving your love, giving your thanks, giving your time, offering to help some single mother who's just, I mean, maxed out and ready to pull her hair out and go over and say, could I just, you know, come over and take care of your kid for one afternoon and let you go and shop or just take off time or something? You'd be surprised what that would do for people. It would edify, the body would begin to be edified in love. That's what it's talking about. Boy, these are tremendous passages of Scripture. Again, you may think I'm belaboring this and staying on this a long time, but really I could have spent hours on talking about these things. I encourage you to study these Scriptures and let the Lord really speak to you some things through this because this is kind of a blueprint for how the body of Christ is supposed to function, not only showing us what the ultimate goal is, where we all have the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, we become a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the end result, but it tells you how you get there. You get there by speaking the truth in love, not being tossed about like little children and following fads. Get founded in the basics, etc. Start ministering to each other. Recognize that every joint in the body of Christ has something to give. There is an effectual working in the measure of every part. The end result is that we edify ourselves in love. Boy, the body of Christ, if we could begin to function like this, I guarantee you the world would be one. In short order, if the body of Christ ever becomes one, O-N-E, then the world will be one, W-O-N, to Christ. We will win the world to Christ if we begin to start walking in the love and the unity that the scripture here portrays. So in verse 17, and I know I'm not going to have time to go very far on this. I may have mentioned this before. I think it was 1993. I spent an entire year meditating on Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Now, I studied other scriptures, but only as they related to this one passage. I mean, God just captivated my attention, and I literally spent a year, thousands and thousands of hours meditating on this. And I've got all kinds of tape series and things that came out of it. There are so many riches in this fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, we could stay on this literally for a year. I did. And so I'm just going to be hitting the tip of the iceberg on this. And verse 17 is where the Lord really began to start speaking some things unto me. In verse 17, he starts off by saying, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. If you really study out those words in the Greek, when he's talking about say right here, he's not talking about just speaking for something, but he's talking about setting forth things in a systematic, logical order of speech. In other words, what he's saying right here is, he says, I'm going to start giving you some steps or guidelines on how to accomplish some things. There is a logical progression here. And as we go through the next few verses, I think that you'll really see this, that there is a tremendous uh, progression of things here that Paul is talking about. So he says, this I say, therefore... 
The word therefore refers back to the previous verses, talking about how we should be in the unity of the faith, how we should not be tossed to and fro. We should come under the knowledge of the stature of the fullness of Christ, etc. Edify ourselves in love. Every member of the body of Christ should function. In other words, this is talking about that there are so many wonderful things available to us as the body of Christ. Our potential is limitless. Because of that, he's saying this, that we henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now, the word Gentiles here, it literally meant anybody who wasn't a Jew. The Jews looked at everybody outside of the Jewish nation as Gentile, and that's literally what the word meant. The way that we would use this word today is uh, he, he's basically saying, don't be as a lost man. People outside of the Jewish nation were separated from the covenants of promise. Remember, we talked about that over in Ephesians chapter 2. And so this is just basically talking about don't walk like a lost man, like an unregenerate man walks. And, you know, it should never have to be told Christians not to walk like a lost man. But it's amazing how much we do reflect the world. I mean, we still, uh, to a large degree, have the same fears, the same anxieties, the same lust, the same things that people outside of the Lord have. And that should not be. It shouldn't be, but it is. It's too prevalent in the body of Christ. There should be a difference between people who are alive and people who are dead. People who aren't born again haven't experienced new birth, new life. They're living a dead life. There should be a radical difference. You shouldn't ever have to tell a Christian that you shouldn't walk like a dead man. But sad to say, we got a lot of people who are watching, thinking, living, acting the exact same way that their lost neighbors do. And Paul here is saying, don't do that. And then he gets very specific. The specific way he told you not to walk like a lost man is in the vanity of your mind. And I'm going to be getting into some things right here that I just haven't got time to finish on this tape. I'll just touch it, and then we'll take up on this. But right here, it begins to start giving a key. How is it? What, what are the major distinguishing characteristics between the lost man and the born-again man? Well, not stated right here. It goes on down in the 24th verse, and it makes this very clear. But in this verse right here, the main thing it concentrates on is the mind. But really, the major difference between a lost man and a born-again man is what's taking place in the spirit man. We have passed from death unto life, and we are now a new creature in Christ. But as far as what can be visible, you know, if you were just looking at at a born-again person, and in a lost person standing side by side, you can't see their spirit. So as far as visible difference, what is it that makes the visible difference, the manifestation of the salvation of one and the lostness of the other one? What is it that controls that? Well, the key right here is in the mind. It's the way you think. Every born-again Christian in their spirit, man, has been totally changed. They have the life of God. They are totally renewed in their spirit. And yet there are varying degrees of that power and salvation manifest in their physical life. You can take two born-again people, put them side by side, and one will operate in such joy and happiness and victory while the other one is sitting there depressed and discouraged, just can't seem to get over it. And people wonder, well, I wonder what the difference is. Many times they'll say, well, God just has blessed one more than the other. But no, that's not it. The truth is that in their spirit, they're identical. 
They both have the fullness of Christ on the inside of them, but the difference as far as what's being shown and manifest in their life is not what God gave them, but rather it's the renewing of the mind. And that's what he's talking about right here. He says, if you want to start seeing these things that I'm talking about come to pass, then you are going to have to quit walking like a Gentile in the vanity of your mind. You're going to have to quit letting your mind and the vanity, the uselessness, the worthlessness of your mind dominate you. Now, this is not saying, Paul is not saying by any stretch of the imagination that he's wanting you to quit using your mind or that he's wanting you to to start being stupid and just get out of operating in logical truth. No, that's not what he's talking about. He specifies the vanity of your mind. Christians need to use their mind. A mind is not a bad thing. It has been used in a bad way, but it just literally, it's like a computer. You know, my mother thinks computers are of the devil. She's afraid of them, doesn't like them around. She won't let one be on her desk. She doesn't like them in her home. She just thinks how somehow or another they're evil. Now, I know that intellectually she knows better than that, but she says things like that. See, there's nothing wrong with a computer. It's just the way that you use it. A computer can be used for good or for bad. A mind can be used for good or for bad. And many times when the scripture is talking about the negative uses of the mind and how we focused on the wrong things, it gives some people the impression, well, then, man, you shouldn't just let your mind dominate it all. No, your mind can be a very productive and useful, beneficial thing used properly. This is talking about the vanity of the mind. In other words, there are negative functions of the mind. And I really hadn't got time to get into this. Let me just mention it real quickly, and then this is where we'll continue on our tape next month. But he says specifically, don't walk in the vanity of your mind. When I first got into this, I looked up the word vanity, and the word vanity, according to the Strong's, just means emptiness. But uh, I was looking for more on this, and it also says that it is the inutility and the transientness of your mind. Now, when I first came across those two words, to me, those two words didn't seem like they were any better than vanity or emptiness. I mean, what does inutility and transientness mean? Well, as I continue to study, you know what this is? Inutility just means that you aren't utilizing your mind. And boy, this is really descriptive of people who don't know the Lord. I mean, they don't use their brain, not in a productive sense. I mean, for instance, when you start talking about sin, sin is not smart. Sin is emotional. A person who's going out and sinning, I mean, if you take uh, people who commit crimes Did you know that nearly every single time there is a trail of evidence that leads you to that person? And you know why? Because people don't sit down and with their mind logically figure out this crime. Most people who are into crime and sinning and doing things like that, it's their sins of passion. They go murder somebody in passion. If they would have thought about it, I mean, it's the wrong thing to do. Even if there wasn't a God that someday you're going to stand accountable to, in the natural, you're going to be caught. In the natural, you left a trail. You didn't plan it out. I mean, people don't use their brain very much. When people go sin, when they commit adultery, I guarantee you, if they thought about what they were doing, 
they would not go commit adultery, especially like if you look at some of the sexually transmitted diseases today. It's just like playing Russian roulette. To go out and have a homosexual relationship or even to go into a prostitute when men sexually transmitted diseases are just rampant, it, it, I mean the odds are definitely against you. And some of these diseases like AIDS are terminal. There's no cure for it. If a person was to use their brain, they would never, under any circumstances, do that. But the truth is, the people who are out doing those things aren't using their brain. They're just letting their emotions dominate and control them. And I tell you, that is very descriptive of our society today. It's become a society that whatever feels good, do it. They have to feel good at all costs. They are so sensitive to the slightest little depression. Everything like that is amplified and, and exaggerated. It's magnified to such a degree that, man, we just can't put up with any negative feelings and we do whatever we have to do to feel good. That's not smart. That's not using your brain. That's the inutility of your mind. That's what this scripture is referring to when it talks about don't walk in the vanity of your mind, the inutility. Man, begin to start thinking. If you would ponder the path of your feet is what the scripture says, it would turn you from sin. If people would sit down and logically begin to start thinking about some things, it would cause them to turn to the Lord. But sad to say, we just let emotions, we let traditions, we let things dominate us, and we don't use our brain. This is what he's talking about right here. Don't be like that. Don't be like a lost man. Begin to start letting God supernaturally enlighten you and give you wisdom. Start using your brain for something besides a hat rack and begin to think and let God direct those thoughts and use that to lead you back unto Him. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.